You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> we are going to now be working through the last sections of first, our second Kings, which is the period after the fall of the Northern Kingdom. Let us suppose, I'm, I'm going to create a, a, a fictional seren, a scenario here. But let's suppose that you were a Ukrainian and you were watching Mr. Putin build up his sources, but there were two fairly sizable countries between you and Russia, which we would call buffer zones. In other words, they got to go through them before they can get to me. But then suddenly those two countries went down and were absorbed into Russia. And now your northern border is the border of Russia. That's exactly what's happened to Judah. Judah has had two buffer states between themselves and Assyria. And those buffer states have been Aram, and Israel, but Aram has gone down under Tiglath-Pileser. Uh, Israel has become a vassal, and then in relatively short time, Israel has gone down. And so now your border, northern border is the border of Assyria, and your capital city is only about six miles from the border. Would you be nervous? I think just a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so that's where we are with Judah. And we're going to begin with Judah's uh, first king, who is Hezekiah, and he is going to start a spiritual revival. And I would have to think that much of the impetus for that spiritual revival is the fact that the Assyrians are right over the line. If we're, going to, if we're going to survive, we're going to have to get our house in order. And so Hezekiah is going to set about getting his house in order. 
Uh, so here are the kings that we're dealing with. Uh, after the fall of Samaria, the northern nation of Israel is absorbed into the Assyrian Empire. It will never be there again. It's gone for all eternity. Later, Assyria is going to fall to Babylon. And the northern lands of Israel will become part of the Babylonian Empire. But that's going to take a few decades. But what you're going to have in Judah is you're going to have a series of the last kings from Hezekiah to Zedekiah. These are the last eight kings of the southern nation. There is one co-regency of Manasseh with Hezekiah. But in this, in this series, you're going to have two good kings. In fact, they will be the best kings that the South have seen since the time of David, Hezekiah and Josiah. But the rest of them are all disasters. They will be bad kings. So uh, we can nail down uh, some things with a certain amount of specificity. Uh, one of our historical markers is going to happen in Josiah in 640. And that's going to be another one of those historical pegs upon which we hang our, uh, our chronology because it coordinates directly with the Assyrian calendar. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at Hezekiah, Ben Ahaz, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, and those who follow him. So his reign is characterized by a very strong reform movement. Uh, he's going to try to bring Judah back on track. Uh, you're going to find that described in quite a bit of detail in both the book of 2 Kings, as well as the book of 2 Chronicles. He's going to get rid of all of the trappings of pagan worship. The Baal cult, the Canaanite fertility cult, he's going to try to get rid of all of that kind of thing. Uh, and in fact, even though he inherits the situation in which he is a vassal to Assyria, he is going to try to break that dependency. So his father was a vassal to Assyria, and so when he becomes king, he is by default a vassal of Assyria. But when the Assyrian emperor dies at home, Sargon II, at the death of the Assyrian empire, Hezekiah sees his window of opportunity to break free and become independent, and he's going to do that. He's going to pay for it, uh, and he's going to prepare to pay for it because he knows they're going to come after him, but he feels like it's worth the risk. So that's sort of the scenario we're looking at, and he is going to then ally himself in a rebellion against the Assyrians, and oddly enough, he is going to be joining the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Sidonians, and two of the cities of the Philistines. Uh, strange bedfellows, as we say, uh, because normally they're at odds with each other. But at least in facing off Assyria, they're going to try to get together. Now, it's in this period of uh, Second Kings that we run into a literary relationship between the book of Isaiah and the book of Second Kings. I mentioned this earlier, and I want to talk a little bit more about it now. Second Kings chapters 18, 19, and 20 is virtually a reproduction of Isaiah chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39. They are 
almost word for word. Even in your English translation of the Bible, they will be almost word for word. And they are almost word for word in Hebrew as well. So as I mentioned earlier, when you see that kind of thing happening in text, you have to assume there's some sort of relationship going on between those two texts. We do not know which is the earlier of those texts, uh, but uh, I think it's likely that Isaiah is the earliest, uh, mostly because 2 Kings is not apparently compiled, or at least what we call the King's Scroll, is not compiled until the exile. And Isaiah doesn't live until the exile. He lives, well, he's going to die, you know, uh, several decades before the exile happens. So if the text between 2 Kings and Isaiah is, is almost identical, then we probably, probably can assume that Isaiah is the earliest of these. But we don't know that for sure. Now, let's talk a little about Hezekiah. Would you like to see a picture of Hezekiah? This was not done with a cell phone camera. This was done on a piece of pottery. And this is the piece of pottery. You can just barely see the outline that has remained on the, this is called an, uh, a shard, or a, uh, actually a diagnostic shard because it has an image on it. But if we take that and we put it into a drawing following what we can barely see on the, on the pottery shard, you get a partial picture of a king seated on the throne. And this is from the uh, royal um, uh, buildings that is in a place called uh, Ramat Rahel, which is kind of uh, between Jerusalem and uh, up toward Bethlehem, or, or down toward Bethlehem, I guess I should say. Uh, and it has this figure of someone seated on a throne. Now, usually in the ancient world, anybody seated on a throne uh, uh, in this way, especially with his arms like this, because these are gestures that kings have. You'll see Assyrians looking like this as well. That probably means they're a king. So since this comes from the period of Hezekiah, this is probably a drawing of Hezekiah. Um, at least that's what we think it is. It doesn't actually have an inscription with a name on it. So this is a, a, an educated guess, but it's a pretty good guess. Um, here is something else that's very interesting. Archaeologists have discovered six seal impressions, all of which have in it this phrase, belonging to Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah. Now, when we discovered the first one, we weren't sure what it said because it was so uh, kind of uh, uh, partly deteriorated that we couldn't see all of the letters. But by the time we got six of them and they were all done with the same sealing ring, it's obvious, it obvious they were all done with the same ring, uh, we could read all of the letters. And, all, and that's what they say, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, the king of Judah. And you'll notice that it has uh, what we've talked about before. Uh, I'll look at the drawing here since that's easier to see. But it has the uh, sun disk, except in this case, it's going to be a dung beetle. I think I talked about that before, that those kind of get interchanged. And these kind of wings that come out of the dung beetle. And then the statement uh, belonging to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. So this is a widely recognized royal symbol. 
and Hezekiah is using it for his symbol. Now, I've inserted into my PowerPoint a slide that I actually took two days ago in Richmond, and this is it. This is an Egyptian winged dung beetle, which is right here in your Richmond uh, Museum of Fine Arts. And it uh, is from roughly this period, but you can see the similarity. You have the beetle or scarab kind of thing in the middle and the wings that come off to the side. Uh, uh, and if you look at them kind of uh, one and then look at the other, even though they're not identical, you can see that they belong to the same kind of icon, uh, which is a royal kind of icon. I think last, maybe last week, I'm not sure I showed you this uh, slide of these little jars and told you that this little writing in here says belonging to the king. These crop up in the period of Hezekiah in mass. We have discovered over a thousand of these, all from the period of Hezekiah. And so earlier I said, you know, we have a kind of an explosion of writing because of the wider spread of literacy. These are one of the evidences of that, uh, these little jar handles. Uh, and they also have basically the same kind of symbol, the circle with the wings, uh, like a sun disk or perhaps a, a beetle. Uh, we're not sure, but uh, they, they come from the same kind, of, uh, same kind of idea. All right, Hezekiah and Assyria. Early in his reign, Hezekiah is by default under the suzerainty of the Assyrian Empire, which was established by his father Ahaz, who had invited this suzerainty relationship uh, when he was, what was threatened by the king of Aram and the king of Israel. Uh, but uh, Assyria brings the northern nation of Israel to an end. And in fact, in bringing its army to destroy Israel, it's going to come right down the coast. Remember, the coast is flat. It's going to come right down the coast to the cities of the Philistines and attack Ashdod, which is one of the Philistine cities. And it's going to destroy it as well. It is not going to destroy Judah or Jerusalem because they are in a suzerainty relationship. So Assyria is not going to attack them because they're theoretically on their side. However, when Sargon II dies, and we know when he died, he died in about 705, Hezekiah sees this window of opportunity and he decides, I'm not going to send in the tribute money. I'm going to break off. And so uh, he and these other local states that I mentioned earlier are going to join in a rebellion against the Assyrians. In fact, there is a pro-Assyrian king in the city of Ekron. Now, Ekron is one of the Philistine cities as well. So they are in a suzerainty relationship with Assyria. One of their kings by the name of Padi is going to be arrested by some of these other states and they're going to deliver him over to Hezekiah for imprisonment. Now, we don't read about that in the Bible. Uh, we know Hezekiah rebelled against Assyria, but we don't know that he joined all these other states to do it and we don't know that he became sort of the jailer, if you will, of this uh, pro-Assyrian king called Padi. The reason we know this 
is because of outside inscriptions that describe the same kind of events. And here they are. The first one is a kind of a slab of clay in which there's cuneiform writing, and it actually names Padi and his son. And then there is this oriental prism, which is at the University of Chicago, their rare, uh, their oriental museum, which they have a lot of ancient Near Eastern stuff. And in this particular prism, it describes directly the revolt uh, of Hezekiah and the others against Assyria and the arrest of Padi and that he's imprisoned uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, so that's why we know those details. These come from outside the Bible sources. Uh, by the way, if you get to Chicago, which is not nearly as far as Paris or London, um, you should, if you can manage it, uh, get an afternoon to go to the Oriental Institute which is uh, part of the University of Chicago. Um, it's not right in the lake, I mean, the, the lakeside, you know, stuff. Uh, it's a little bit south of there, but you can get, uh, you can get there pretty easily on the bus uh, or uh, the, um, what's the elevator, the L, I guess they just call it the L, but anyway, the, the high rail kind of thing. Uh, they'll get you down there, and it's, uh, I don't believe it costs, uh, but most people don't know it's there because it's mostly ancient Near Eastern artifacts. Uh, it's got a bunch of really good ones. It's one of the best in the world. Uh, so uh, I would say as far as the United States is concerned, there are only two that are of that caliber. Uh, that would be one of them, and the other one would be the Semitic Museum at Harvard University. Uh, both of those are really, really good. Uh, so, anyway, if you get to Chicago, um, go on down there and have a look. Um, they'll have some really interesting stuff. Well, if you're Hezekiah and you have refused to send in tribute money, uh, you can expect that at some point the Syrians are going to pay you a call. And so Hezekiah is going to start getting ready for that because he knows it's coming. Thank you for the water, Faith. I missed the water yesterday. I was a little dry after the day was over. So I'm, uh, as they say, wetting my whistle. <laughs> okay. Now, Hezekiah is going to do some defense preparations. Uh, so this is going to include several things. One of them is the construction of a new wall section to Jerusalem that's going to be heavily fortified. Archaeologists call it the broad wall, and in a minute I'll show you why they call it that. But it is a heavy, heavy wall, and it has been excavated. We've discovered it. Uh, it's mentioned in the Bible that Hezekiah built this wall, but we actually have found the wall. Uh, and another thing he's going to do is he's going to create a new water reservoir on the west side of the city of David uh, by bringing water from the Gihon Spring, he's going to do an underground tunnel. I think I talked about walking through it maybe uh, two or three days ago. But he's going to create this tunnel all the way to the other end to bring water because the population of Jerusalem has quadrupled in the last six months. 
mostly by refugees fleeing from the north. So I don't know, what's the population of Richmond? So that was a million? 225,000, let's suppose suddenly it boomed up to a, boomed up to a million, you know, I mean, it's like, wow. What do you do with all these people? 300,000, okay, so let's suppose it booms up to over a million, just, just overnight. Um, you've got housing issues, you've got protection issues, you've got food issues. I mean, you've got a lot of issues to deal with, and Hezekiah has this to deal with, so he's gonna do his best. Uh, the other, uh, uh, so these are the, the two major things we know that he did because both of them are described in the Bible and both of them we have discovered archaeologically. <clears throat> so uh, let's talk about the way the city of Jerusalem has gone since, the, since David took it over. When David took over the old city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, which we talked about last week in uh, the books of Samuel, this little blue section here is the city of David. It's not very big, it's 10 acres. I think the campus here is 16 acres. So the, I believe that's what Chris told me, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so that means that the city of David is smaller than your campus. It's not very big. And if you get to go to Jerusalem and see that little hill, you think, wow, all this stuff happened on this one little hill? Man, it's, uh, it's not very big. Uh, you can walk across it in about 20 minutes, uh, uh, easy. So this is the city of David at the time that David takes it, and the population in the period of David is going to be around 2,000 or so. Then it's going to uh, bump up in Solomon because Solomon is going, David is, has bought the top of this mountain here called Mount Zion, and the temple is going to be built up at the top of this, uh, this mountain. And so between the city of David and the temple gets filled in with state buildings and people that come to live in Jerusalem. And so its population bumps up to about 5,000. That's what archaeologists estimate, estimate, given what we've uncovered and what we think of the population density. So that continues on for a while, and it's going to probably grow some. But when you get to the time of Hezekiah, look at the difference. This blue section is what Hezekiah enlarges it. Now, I've got this dark line here. This is the present-day walls in Jerusalem. Uh, so I don't know that they will be helpful, but I want you to especially look at the blue part. So now the city of Jerusalem is 125 acres, and the population is bumped up to about 25,000. And much of this has happened within the last few months because of the fall of the northern kingdom. Levites have come south. Citizens have come south. Everybody that could get away with whatever little possessions they had are coming south, and they're trying to find protection under Hezekiah. So Hezekiah is going to create a new set of walls to enclose and protect these people, he is going to take the water from the Gihon Spring, which is over here, and he's going to dig a tunnel way over here and put a big pool right here, which we know from its New Testament name, it's the Pool of Siloam. Okay, that's what you find in the New Testament, but that's the pool. 
And he's going to, to do that with uh, uh, this underground tunnel bringing the water from the Gihon Spring. So that is going to be helpful to the people that are now crowded in this new area of the city. This is the broad wall. Now, these excavate, the, this, this photo is about 50 years old. So it's back there a ways. Jerusalem has built up quite a lot more now than it was 50 years ago. But you can see someone standing on top of the wall, so you can see how the, wide the wall is. The wall is nearly as wide as this classroom. Why would they build a wall that fat? What are they protecting against? Battering rams, exactly. They're protecting against battering rams because the Assyrians have perfected siege warfare with battering rams, and they've been knocking down walls all over the ancient Near East with their battering rams. So Hezekiah is going to build this huge, broad wall, uh, and they have actually preserved, even though today this broad wall ends up being in the middle of a series of apartment buildings. Uh, it, it's really, really crazy. I mean, you got the wall here, and then you got these high rises on each side, you know, but uh, that's one reason I use this, this uh, old picture is because this is before those were built. Uh, and you can actually kind of see the, the wall better. But he creates this broad wall, and then he is going to create this underground tunnel. Now, <clears throat> right down through the middle here is the Hill of Ophel, which is the city of David. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's got very steep sides and kind of a ridge, uh, that's what we would call it in probably Virginia or Tennessee, we would call it a ridge. So the city of David is on this high ridge. It has an underground spring called the Gihon over here. This is where Solomon was crowned king uh, when he was, uh, when David was dying or David was ready, ready to die. So <clears throat> from the Gihon spring, they are going to create a water tunnel that's going to end up down here in what we call the present pool of Siloam. But you can see it's not a straight shot by any means. And uh, what do you think? Why would they do a tunnel with a double S curve? Say what? Uh, possibly. Uh, what it seems to be from our examination is that they are following a fault line. So if you follow a fault line in the rock, it's a lot less work because you've got a cut, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing that's interesting is that they built it by starting at both ends and meeting in the middle. We don't know that from the Bible either, but we know that from an inscription that explains how they built the tunnel. Um, that's a pretty amazing engineering feat for people, you know, 2,500 years ago, more or less. What numbers did they use? Uh, no, they don't. Arabic numbers are still a few hundred years away. Uh, so all numbers are written out 
as words. But there are certain letters of the alphabet that substitute for numbers. Uh, so uh, Aleph means one, Bait means two. You have a, a letter that means 10, a letter that means 200, and so on. So the way they do it is with alphabetic letters, kind of like in Latin, where you have a X and a V and an L and that sort of thing. Okay, so that's what they're doing. Now, how they, how they figure this out mathematically, quite honestly, I don't know. Um, because when you're building a tunnel like this from a spring to a pool, you have to have slope because it's got to be gravity fed. So when you get down to the other end, you, you, you want the water to get there, you know, uh, and it's got to be gradual but kind of evenly spaced. Um, I've gone through this tunnel and it's, it's not steep. It's a very gradual slope. I would suggest about, I'm guessing not more than 2%, uh, 2% grade. Uh, so it's, it's a very gentle slope, but it does end up at the pool. Today, this is not used as a drinking water source. This is used as an irrigation source for the village of Silwan. Silwan is down at the bottom here. Uh, so when you get down to the bottom, if this map were bigger, right down here, there's a village called Silwan, uh, and they use it to uh, irrigate their gardens and that sort of thing. But for Hezekiah, this was used as a major water source. Now, one of the interesting things about the way they built it and about the inscription that we have that describes it is that when the two teams are getting close to each other in the middle, they find each other by listening for hammer blow sounds through the rock. And so there are a bunch of little jogs in here where they go in about, I don't know, three or four feet side. I think this is the wrong direction. Let's go over here and try this way. And that happens several times until they finally meet in the middle. Uh, and the, once the tunnel is open, then the water flows. Um, this is, uh, I showed you this picture before. This is the Gihon Spring. So if you're going to walk through the tunnel, you will come down these steps, and you'll step down off of this step into the water, uh, which is going to be about, uh, you know, up to your waist, maybe higher if it's a rainy season. Uh, or if you're in the dry season, it might be down around your knees. It kind of depends on the season. And then you can walk through the tunnel, that, that double S curve, and come out at the other end. Uh, here's a couple of other pictures I don't think I showed you before. This is what it looks like kind of in the middle. It's a relatively square kind of tunnel. Uh, and here you can see some of these jogs that are in the tunnel that kind of go off a little bit here and there until they decide that's not the right direction. Um, so it's a really interesting thing. This is the inscription. This is the one that is in the Museum in Istanbul that describes in fair amount of detail how they started at both ends, how they were listening for hammer blows in the rock when they got toward the middle, finally broke through each man on the opposite side to his fellow, and the water flows through. And so this tunnel was completed sometime shortly before 701 BC. Um, Assyria is going to invade in 701 BC. So this is done prior to that, but probably not very much before that. Um, so, uh, any questions about the tunnel or 
Hezekiah's defense preparations for what he is pretty sure is going to be coming his way from Assyria? Yep. It's pretty much original what it was. They've not, they've not shored it up or anything. They've not gone down and reinforced it. Uh, it's uh, at, the, at the center of the tunnel between there and the top of the ridge is nearly 600 feet. So it's deep. Uh, and uh, the, the hill of Ophel is very steep sides and comes up to this ridge, you know, it, but it's a very sharp ridge. And even... It's, it's not as sharp on the slope today as it was, you know, two and a half thousand years ago just because of silt and so on, which kind of, so the slope is still pretty steep, very steep actually, but it's not quite as steep as it used to be. Um, uh, so the, yeah, as far as I know, they've not done any, uh, any kind of, you don't see any timbers or anything in there that seems like they've been reinforcing it. It's just been running water for the last two and a half thousand years and it's still working. And it's pretty rare to, to find an installation like that that is that old and one that at this point the scholars all agree on because you have this inscription uh, which tells you just what they did and we know exactly where the inscription came from. There's a place where they carved it out and then took it to Turkey. Uh, so it used to be right in the rock of the wall now near the south end of the tunnel. I think this inscription was inside the mouth of the, the south end of the tunnel about if I remember correctly, about 100 feet or so, something like that, but quite near the south end. So it's, a, it's an interesting place. I was there once with a group of students, and uh, I met, of all people, a pastor from the city where I was a pastor. I said, Dan, what are you doing down here? He said, I'm touring Jerusalem. What are you doing now? Well, I get this group of students, and we're doing an archaeological tour. He said, I'm trying to find Hezekiah's tunnel. Do you know how to get to it? I said, yeah, I'm taking a group through this afternoon. You want to come? Yes. So uh, <clears throat> Dr. Dan uh, joined our group, and he went through the tunnel with us. Uh, it was just one of those weird coincidences that halfway around the world, you meet somebody you know, you know. Um, once in a while, that happens. That happened once in a crosswalk in London. I was halfway across the street, and somebody said, Mr. Dan. I said, Somebody calling me? And it was a YWAM student who I had met somewhere, and we met in the crosswalk. <laughs> All right. The new emperor of Assyria is Sennacherib. And Sennacherib is going to marshal his army and head toward Jerusalem, just as Hezekiah supposed might happen. Uh, he's going to savagely attack Judah because of its rebellion and its refusal to pay tribute. Now, the narratives about the attack and Hezekiah's, uh, ver uh, later Hezekiah's illness and so on are, as I mentioned, virt virtually the same as you find in Isaiah. So you may want to just, uh, at some point, just kind of put those two side by side and just, just see how similar they are. They're going to be kind of like reading Matthew and Mark. I mean, they're very, very similar. Actually, they are more similar than even Matthew and Mark. Uh, very, very close. Uh, <clears throat> so Assyrian records actually confirm that this happened. So we not only know about this from the Bible, but we know this also from Assyrian records that Sennacherib attacked Jerusalem. 
he is going to attack Sidon first, then Ashkelon, then Akron, mostly because these are smaller, and then he's going to attack Judah. Uh, and uh, Hezekiah is going to be advised by a very important person, which is, is Isaiah, the prophet, who is serving kind of as his, his advisor, or his prophetic advisor, maybe you want to call him that. Padi will eventually be released and reinstated in Ekron. Uh, now, here's another Assyrian text called the Taylor Prism. It's called Taylor because the archaeologist who discovered its name is Taylor. Um, so if you ever discover a really important artifact, maybe, maybe it'll get named after you. It might be the Hannah inscription or the uh, Maya inscription or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, this one is in the British Museum, and it looks very much like the one that is in the University of Chicago. And this is going to describe the invasion in quite a bit of detail. Sennacherib claims that he destroyed 46 walled cities in Judah or villages in Judah. And he claimed to deport over 200,000 people. Now, that's a lot of people. That's getting up there near the size of the city of Richmond. Uh, that's a lot of people to move out. Now, these don't come from Jerusalem because Jerusalem is enclosed in the walls and they're sitting tight and holding their own. But it's going to pretty much wipe out much of the rest of Judah. Uh, the rest of Judah other than Jerusalem is going to be pretty bankrupt uh, after this invasion by Sennacherib. And in this prism, he is going to say, and this is a quotation from these texts, Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. But Hezekiah listened to the word of Isaiah and trusted in the Lord and even though Sennacherib said he shut him up like a bird in a cage, he did not get into the birdcage. Uh, he uh, is going to have his army surrounding Jerusalem, and a plague is going to destroy a number of his soldiers, and he's going to head home. Uh, we know about the plague from the writings of the Greek historian Herodotus. Herodotus tells us about the plague that happened to Sennacherib's soldiers. We don't really know exactly what it was. Uh, Herodotus seems to connect it with rats, which have suggested to some people it might be something like bubonic plague. Um, in the Bible, it's the angel of death. Um, but works the same. Anyway, got, it, it, it got enough of Sennacherib's attention that he decided to go home. One of the things that's uh, interesting about this invasion, well, first of all, let's talk about siege warfare. In siege warfare, where you are attacking a walled city that's heavily fortified, what are you doing in the siege? You're basically cutting off all communication, outside resources, and starving them out. Um, in fact, later... When the Babylonians put Jerusalem to siege, they will do this, and the siege will last almost two and a half years. By the end of that time, people were eating each other. 
They had resorted to cannibalism. It was so desperate in the city of Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> another thing that's important to understand is that in uh, the mountains of Judah, there are just a, a limited number of ways that you can get an army through those mountains. Uh, a single person or a small group can just kind of trot off over the canyon and the ridge and find their way. But if you've got an army of thousands and thousands of people with machinery like battering rams and so on, you can't, you can't just go anyway. You've got to go through the passes in order to get somewhere. So Jerusalem is up at the top of the ridge in this central mountain chain. In fact, that is why in the Bible, when you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is high in elevation. And up and down in the Bible do not refer to north and south. They refer to elevation. Doesn't matter what direction you're coming from, you're going to go up if you're going to go to Jerusalem because it's up there. So um, the Assyrians have to find their way through. Now, what the people of Judah have done is in these mountain passes where they know armies are going to have to come, they have built protective fortress cities. And these fortress cities are six or eight miles, some of them 10 miles from Jerusalem, but they are guarding those passes. And one of the most important of those passes is going to be the pass from the uh, coastal side and there is a city called Lachish, which is about eight or 10 miles from Jerusalem that guards that pass. Sennacherib is going to have to take down Lachish before he can get to Jerusalem. And he is going to take down Lachish. Lachish is also fortified with heavy walls. And he's going to attack Lachish. One of the interesting things we have is that when he got home, he created an entire room in his palace with bas-reliefs of his attack upon the Judean fortress city of Lachish. And those panels have made their way to the British Museum and are in one entire gallery. The whole gallery is just the bas-reliefs of Sennacherib's palace and his attack upon the Judean city of Lachish. Uh, it's uh, considerably larger than this room. <clears throat> it's more long and narrow. This, it's longer than this room, probably about the same width as this room. So you got to go to London and you got to go see the, you got to go see this gallery. So I'll show you a picture too from it. This is his attack upon the uh, tower of Lachish. And you can see that you have a battering ram here. It's got wheels and then this kind of, um, framework. It has a big battering ram here that's pointed toward the walls. There's a fulcrum right up here. So this, this thing goes back and forth once you get it up here to hammer away at the walls. Um, I don't know, looking at what, what do you see uh, in, in this uh, depiction uh, that is uh, from one of these reliefs? You can see obviously the tower you can see shields at the top of the tower. What else do you see? Go ahead, Edivon. Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> you're talking about this thing here? 
Oh, this guy here? Yeah, well, they, they often used grappling hooks. These would be big hooks that you throw on the end of a, a rope. I don't know if they had a rope quite like we do, but more or less. And it snags the top of the wall and you kind of go up. Or they use scaling ladders. I don't know if I'd want to be the first guy up the ladder. I think uh, that probably <laughs> means he's going to be expendable. Um, <clears throat> all right, anything else you see here of interest? Okay. Uh, do you see these things that look like laid stone? These are what are called siege ramps. So the soldiers build ramps to get a smooth surface uh, to get their battering ram up there because the defenders are going to try to make that surface very uneven and rough to make it very hard to get a battering ram up there. So they build a siege ramp and then they can push it up. Now these are probably not nearly that steep in real life, but this is art, so you got to give them a little bit of breathing space for that. So there, uh, when you get to the book of Ezekiel, which I, I might be a couple of weeks from now, you'll find that Ezekiel is going to build a model of the siege of Jerusalem with siege ramps. So he's going to build some of these things in his little model. Um, what do you think these things are, these long-looking things in the air are? What, what does that look like it might be? Like what? Well, kind of, kind of, except that they are actually the little square ones are probably more like things that they're throwing down like rocks. But the long things are basically twists of straw that are dipped in pitch, set on fire, and then thrown down as firebrands. And you can see there's a soldier in this battering ram with a long ladle and he's pouring water over the battering ram shaft to keep it wet so it doesn't catch on fire. Um, there's all kinds of interesting things uh, that you see in these bas reliefs about warfare. Uh, but this panel, uh, I like this one in particular because it has several of them all in the same little panel. Plus, you can see refugees of war, or what we would call POWs, are heading off into exile with their little pack on their back. Everything they own that they can get into a little pack is going to be on their back, and then they're going to be taking a several hundred-mile walk into Assyria, wherever they end up. So this is one of the bar reliefs. Here's another one of uh, prisoners of war. These are Judeans coming out of Lachish. You can see the oxen look like they haven't been fed real well. You can see their ribs really clearly. Um, uh, you can see two women and a couple of uh, young uh, children and then a couple of really small children. They're actually riding on a wagon. Uh, and so this is an Israelite man. And so he's basically taking his family uh, and he's headed off into, uh, into exile in some way. The Assyrians were known and feared for their brutality. They were particularly brutal. They perfected the uh, technique of skinning people alive, uh, and they did that. They uh, also skewered people 
alive. Uh, here's a picture of some of them being skewered. Um, they would set these up outside a city wall as intimidation, basically saying, if you will give up, this won't happen to you. But if you continue to defend your city, this is, what's, this is what, what awaits you. So it's, it's uh, uh, horrific intimidation. Uh, they decapitated people. They cut off their hands. They cut off their feet. They punched out their eyes. They cut off their ears. They notched their noses. They put hooks through their jaw. In fact, as we're going to see in uh, the Chronicles record, Manasseh is going to be taken a prisoner to Assyria with a hook through his jaw. That's not a metaphor. That is exactly what they did. They hooked it right up through the roof of his mouth, and he walked for a thousand miles with a hook in his mouth. Uh, it's 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 very it's savage, very savage. So the Assyrians were feared. Nobody wanted to deal with the Assyrians. That's why so many people so quickly got into vassal relations with the Syrians. They wanted to avoid, uh, you know, the nasty possibilities. So Sennacherib is going to make a threat to the citizens of Jerusalem. <clears throat> He's going to deliver this threat, and this one you're going to have to coordinate with Isaiah chapter 7, because it isn't, all of that's not going to be in the king's record. Some of it's going to be in the book of Isaiah. But in Isaiah chapter 7, earlier, Isaiah has warned Ahaz, if he will stand firm in his faith, God will deliver him. Ahaz ignored the prophet. This time, Sennacherib is going to deliver a warning to the citizens of Jerusalem, basically in the same place that Isaiah once had warned Ahaz. And now Isaiah is going to counsel Hezekiah. Almost the same thing. Hezekiah... Stand firm in your faith, trust in the Lord, he will take care of you. And Hezekiah is going to listen. And Sennacherib is not going to get into the birdcage. Uh, he will have to go home. <clears throat> so uh, Ahaz ignored Isaiah, but Hezekiah listens. And in spite of all of his threats, and he gives some pretty serious threats, uh, Sennacherib does not breach the walls of Jerusalem and he does not conquer the city. In fact, he hears a report, one of his outlying scouts report to him that there is an army mobilizing to the south under the leadership of Terhaka, uh, which is an Egyptian pharaoh. And that is serious enough, plus this plague that happens to his troops, uh, that Sennacherib decides to withdraw. And so, just as Isaiah said, God did, in fact, deliver Hezekiah from literally from the lion's mouth. All right. Um, how about a little poetry? English poetry. I hesitated to do this, and I, this is not in the original slides I had for you, but I put them in because I like this poem. It's by uh, Lord Byron. Uh, if you've ever taken a course in British literature, you had to read some of Byron's poetry. Uh, and this is a poem that is about this event. Uh, you don't find all that many British poems about biblical events, but this one is about this event. So I thought, now yeah, why not? It's good for you culturally to deepen your breadth of or broaden your, your, your cultural sensitivity. So here's the poem. 
And I apologize, it is in English, and that probably is going to be particularly difficult for you, Annabelle. Um, but you'll forgive me, I hope. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest, when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest, when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings in the blast, and he breathed in the, foe of the foe, face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill. Their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the steed with his nostrils all wide, but through it there rolled not the breath of his pride, and the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf and cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf. And there lay the rider distorted and pale with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail, and the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broken in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. I think that's a cool poem. So maybe you don't. For what it's worth. <laughs> anyway, so much for a little bit of uh, English culture. All right. Sennacherib is going to die at the hands of his own family. Uh, this is going to be actually predicted. Uh, and we actually have a record of this in what is called the Babylonian Chronicle, which is a series of cuneiform texts that have been discovered. And this is one of them. This is in the British Museum in London as well. It says, on the 20th day of the month of Tibet, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, was killed by his own son in a rebellion, which is exactly what was predicted by the prophet in the book of 2 Kings. <clears throat> now, we come to the end of Hezekiah's life. Two final episodes in his life. One is when he gets sick. And Isaiah comes and tells him, uh, put your stuff in order because this is it. You're going to die. And Hezekiah prays for reprieve. And the prophet goes back and says, well, the Lord has granted you a few more years. So this happens. Uh, and as a sign that he will be granted additional years of life, it says that the shadow on the sundial will go in the wrong direction. It will reverse itself. So a little bit like, I suppose, the sun standing still in the book of Joshua, you know, something like that. Uh, so the nature of this device is debated in the Qumran text of, of, of uh, Kings. It calls it the upper dial of Ahaz. So it describes that as a dial, a sundial. However, uh, other passages talk about a, uh, a reckoning based on steps. 
And we have both of them in the ancient world. A sundial is the circular thing with a pointy thing and the shadow falls at different degrees. Steps is a way of catching the sun's rays and casting a shadow on a wall behind the steps. And so the shadow moves up the steps as an increment of hours. So we're not exactly sure what this was like. But in any case, um, uh, this was the sign uh, to Hezekiah that God would give to him more years. Now, I want to, out of this, uh, caution you about something that is floating around on the internet. It's not new. <clears throat> it was floating down around on paper long before the internet was even invented. Uh, and it's the idea that there is a lost day and a lost period of time in astronomical history. And it basically usually goes by the title, The Missing Day of Joshua or something like that. But it tries to connect the story in Joshua with the sun standing still with this story in Isaiah where the sundial shadow goes the wrong direction. And it says that in Maryland, scientists have discovered a missing day in the astronomical record. And it's a supposed to be a proof of the value of the Bible and uh, all that sort of thing. I can empathize with the desire to support the value of the Bible. I believe in that wholeheartedly. But this thing is not true. Don't start using that <clears throat> as a tool to prove the Bible because it's flat out not true. Uh, it's been debunked. Uh, by scholars, evangelical and non-evangelical on every side, uh, but for some reason it kind of has a life of its own, and it, uh, I don't know if that's because of social media, which often tends toward things that have a life of their own, but it still keeps floating around. Uh, and so just as a, as a word of warning, if you run into it, or you've ever run into it, or you want to actually, you probably Google Joshua's missing day, and you can probably find it, uh, but if you do, uh, don't give it too much serious thought. <clears throat> okay? Hezekiah uh, is going to make a very rash decision. Now, at this point, Assyria is the big bully. Assyria is a superpower. Assyria has a huge, sprawling empire. Uh, it has armies, both mercenary and Assyrian, that are all over everywhere, and everybody's afraid. But there are various groups of people or cities that are anti-Assyrian in sentiment. And one of them is Babylon. Well, that is probably why there was some sort of communication going on between Hezekiah and Babylon, is because they're both anti-Assyrian. And some representatives of Babylon are going to visit Jerusalem and come to see Hezekiah. He has actually survived the invasion of Sennacherib, which is a, I mean, in the ancient world, that is more than a feather in your cap. That's a, a big exclamation point that you are a very special person if you survive that. So anyway, they've sent some emissaries to, to Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is going to show them the entire treasury in the temple. Bad idea. And Isaiah is going to tell him that was a bad idea. Um, 
about 100 years later, Assyria will be gone and the Babylonians will be the big bully. And they're going to remember that it will be worth their while to come to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah made a very, very bad uh, judgment error in showing them this. This is the king of Babylon at the time of Hezekiah. Uh, in the Bible, he's called Merodach Baladan. I've used his uh, Babylonian name at the top. Uh, this is a, actually a boundary marker, uh, uh, but it does have an image of Merodach Baladan in it, the king who was the king of Babylon at the time of Hezekiah that sent these representatives to Jerusalem. All right, uh, that's pretty much all I'm going to say about Hezekiah, unless you have some questions about this gentleman. Anybody uh, ever ask somebody to find a passage in the book of Hezekiah? Well, there is no book of Hezekiah, but sometimes people that aren't so familiar with the Old Testament spend a bit of time looking for it anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we ready to go on to Manasseh, Hezekiah's son? All right. At the age of 12, Manasseh begins a co-regency with his father, Hezekiah. So his teenage years, he is sort of the prince regent, I suppose you could say. He's actually considered to be reigning, although actually his father is probably doing most of the major stuff. But when Hezekiah dies, Manasseh will then become the full king. And when he does, he's going to reverse all of the progress that Hezekiah has made in turning the nation back toward the Lord. Hezekiah is going to, uh, his, his, uh, all of his, his efforts are going to be largely defoiled uh, by Manasseh. And Manasseh is going to turn back to paganism. He's going to turn back to the fertility cult. He is actually going to bring a statue of Astarte and put it in the temple. Uh, that's just desecration on a major, major scale. Uh, he participates in the religions of the Zodiac, which is uh, basically Babylonian-type religion. So like Ahaz, his grandfather, Manasseh, is going to follow paganism, and he is also going to sacrifice his own son. Uh, the prophet, more than any other that's going to castigate him for this, will be Jeremiah. Um, he places an Asherah pole in the temple, which is a symbol of the female uh, goddess uh, idea. And the prophets are going to announce that Judah now is doomed for exile. Uh, Israel has been exiled earlier. Now the southern nation of Judah is going to follow in kind. So if Hezekiah's reign was kind of the high watermark for the kingdom of Judah, Manasseh is going to be the low watermark. Uh, he uh, is, is going to be so bad that Jeremiah says, even if Samuel and Moses were alive to pray for this nation, it wouldn't be enough. Uh, that's, that's pretty bad because <laughs> they're the great intercessors, you know. Uh, so... Uh, there will be one more attempt to get Judah back on course under the reign of Josiah. Uh, that will be uh, after Manasseh's reign is over. But Manasseh is going to rule for quite a long time. He's going he's to be in power for several decades. 
and his spiritual decline uh, is going to take the nation down a road from which it will really not recover. Uh, the longstanding tradition is that Isaiah was martyred during Manasseh's reign. Now, this comes from an ancient Jewish text called the Martyrdom of Isaiah, which is not as old as the book of Kings. Uh, it is uh, probably written sometime near the end of the intertestamental period. But it does describe how Manasseh decided that Isaiah was a threat to his kingship and he had him killed by having him sawed in half with a tree saw. That doesn't sound like a very happy way to go. You do find a reference to that, obliquely at least, in the New Testament, in the heroes of faith in the book of Hebrews, when it says some were sawed in half. And it's almost certainly referring to this tradition about the prophet Isaiah. Well, during uh, Manasseh's reign, uh, Judah goes wholesale into the fertility cult. We have uh, discovered thousands of these little fertility figures in the villages and cities of Judah uh, from the 8th century and the early 7th century. Uh, so all of these are little uh, Asherah kind of figurines, the female goddess, and they're obviously fairly sexual. Uh, the fertility cult was by nature very sexual. Here's another interesting artifact. This one is a potsherd, which was on a large, um, a large clay jar that was uh, shattered. You can barely see the imagery on the potsherd, but the archaeologists have given you a drawing of what that would have looked like, so you can see it a little more, more clearly. And what is of interest is, uh, well, actually, there's a couple of things of interest. One is that this represents Yahweh, and this represents Yahweh's girlfriend. They have gone so far down paganism that they have decided that Yahweh has a girlfriend just like Baal has a girlfriend. And so they are kind of androgynous figures. They're uh, not quite sure whether they are uh, completely male or completely female. They are... I don't know, for lack of a better term, kind of transgender, I suppose. Um, they, uh, and in fact, Canaanite religion practiced transvestitism as part of its uh, religious uh, trappings and so on. Uh, but what is really interesting is this inscription. I bless you by Yahweh and his Asherah. So this piece of graffiti, which is found in Judah from this period of time, shows the trend that is happening in the nation. Well, Manasseh establishes Judah's vassalship to Assyria once again. Uh, uh, Hezekiah had resisted that, had broken away, but Manasseh falls right back into it. Uh, and the chronicler indicates that Manasseh suffered actually a deportation to Assyria. Now, you don't find that in Kings, but you do find it in Chronicles that Manasseh actually ends up going to Babylon or, or somewhere in the east, maybe he ended up in Nineveh, I'm not sure where he went, but he, he, is, he is going to have a temporary deportation to Assyria. Um, also, Assyrian texts mention him by name and say that Manasseh supplied building materials for some of the expansions of the city of Nineveh. 
So you run into the city of Nineveh, of course, in the book of Jonah, but you run into it in some of these inscriptions that name Manasseh as part of the uh, supplier of material, building materials for the expansion of the city of uh, Nineveh. Finally, Manasseh dies. His son Ammon uh, doesn't really try to reverse anything, but his rule is relatively short. He's assassinated uh, fairly quickly, and then we're going to have a new king rising. So with that little bit at this point, let me stop and see if you have anything else you want to ask about Manasseh. We've gone through Hezekiah, Manasseh, just a brief mention of Ammon, and now we're ready for Josiah. Cassie, can I ask you a question? When did you start this? At the beginning of the DBS? No, the one you're working on. Okay. But I, I don't do it every day. I, I no, I notice you don't do it every day, and it doesn't bother. I'm not, yeah. I'm not objecting. I'm just, I'm curious, because I, uh, I mean, it's getting pretty good size. I have <laughs> two, three Okay. And did you tell me earlier that you haven't yet decided what this is going to be? No, this is going to be a blanket. It is going to be a blanket. Okay. Yeah. Why don't you ask it? <laughs> At worst, I could just say I have no idea. I think that's a fair question. Um, we're a long ways from the invention of gunpowder, yeah. uh, but the weapons that they did have were probably the best that they had. I don't think they had a lot more than what we know about. Um, and they were brutal. There's, there's just no question. They were brutal. What they would have done had they had different kinds of weapons, I guess I'm not sure, but my sense of it is that what makes a person wicked and violent is not a type of weapon, but a mindset. Um, you, you can... You can take a violent person and strip them of all of the weapons, and they'll still be violent. They'll find a way to be violent because it's their mindset to be violent. And I think that was probably true in the ancient world, whatever kind of weapons they would have had. That's my guess, anyway. By the same token, I think that's probably true in the modern world. 
Now, I'm going to step out on a limb here and get just a little bit political, so you'll forgive me if this offends you. But I think a lot of the discussion about trying to do away with weapons in America, which uh, you have gun control and various kinds of things and the arguments about the Second Amendment and so on. But in my opinion, if they took everything away, it would not, in fact, solve the issue because I don't think the issue is a matter of a weapon type. I have been in a number of countries in Europe and elsewhere in which they have no guns at all. And there are just as many murders, there's just as many, much violence, there's just as much treachery and, you know, brutality as they ever were. They, they'll do it with a rock if they can't do it with a gun. So I, I, I see a lot of this as being kind of utopianism, uh, this idea that if we do all this stuff right, we kind of, everybody's a, kind of a good little boy and girl in their heart, and if we educate them better and take away their guns, they'll all be nice boys and girls. I don't think it's true. I think the problem is in the human heart, in the human disposition, not with the type of weapons they have. That doesn't justify violence, and I'm not trying to justify violence, because I think it isn't justified, but I do think a lot of the hoopla that we hear about it is misguided. Um, so, I don't know, if that's on the tape and they want to eliminate that, that's fine. It's, uh, I know it's, it's one side of the issue that people have different opinions about. And, um, so, good for them, good for us. So, but anyway, that's my point of view for what it's worth. And you asked the question, that would be my answer to it. Yeah. <clears throat> well, Josiah is going to, once again, do his best to get things back online. Uh, after the assassination of his father, Josiah gets on the throne uh, pretty early, the tender age of eight. We've had one going to come to the throne at the age of seven. Now we got one on the throne at the age of eight. Um, uh, and his ascension year can be fixed at 640. This is one of those pegs that we can, we can directly connect with the Babylonian chronicle. So this is now not only the Assyrian calendar, but the Babylonian calendar. So the year 640, when you compare my calendar I gave you with the one in your study Bible, with the one in, uh, you'll find in a Bible dictionary, you're generally going to find everybody agrees on the 640. They may not agree on all the others, but they generally agree on that one. They might fudge it a little bit. Some might say 641, but it's going to be real close. <clears throat> um, there's no really information about the teenage years of uh, Josiah's reign. Probably He's under the uh, supervision of a priest or court officials. So he's probably not doing much ruling when he's eight or nine years old. Uh, I can't imagine an eight or nine-year-old running any country, although I have seen people try it that strike me as being about eight years old uh, mentally. Uh, but anyway, we won't go into that. <clears throat> um, his initial reforms begin when he's a teenager. They do start pretty early, uh, but in his 18th regnal year, that would make him about 26, 25, 26. He begins a, 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 a very precise movement 
of trying to pull the nation back to its roots. And he's going to start by renovating the temple. The temple in Jerusalem has fallen into disrepair, neglect, and Josiah is going to try to set that right. And in the process of the reconstruction of parts of the temple, the high priest by the name of Hilkiah discovers a scroll of the law, or what's called the book of the law, which means a Torah scroll. Now, you need to remember that Torah scrolls are generally individual scrolls, a scroll for Genesis, a scroll for Exodus, a scroll for Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So if he discovers a Torah scroll, it immediately raises the question, which one? And why had it been misplaced or lost or disused or whatever? Uh, so the distressed reaction of Josiah when he hears it read has convinced most scholars that this is probably the scroll of Deuteronomy. Uh, I mean, Josiah is just acutely distressed when he hears what this scroll says. And so uh, he immediately realizes we're going to have to change some things immediately if we're going to survive. God is, he's not looking at us with a very friendly glance right now. And so we need to do something. Uh, the, what would make the most sense is that he's listening to those horrific curses in the book of Deuteronomy for covenant violation. And that has convinced most interpreters that, that probably the scroll of Deuteronomy is what is found. Uh, the scroll was sent, interestingly enough, to Huldah for reading. Now, that raises another kind of question. Why would they send it to Huldah instead of Jeremiah? He was in the city at that time, but he was young. Maybe Huldah was kind of what we would call the senior prophetess. <laughs> I don't know if they had such a thing, but uh, she had esteem uh, and they sent it to her. And maybe also she could read. Maybe not everybody else could read. We don't even know if Jeremiah could read. Jeremiah dictates all of his material from memory. So I don't know that that means he couldn't read, but uh, some have suggested that perhaps Jeremiah himself couldn't read. And that's why he dictated his material to Baruch. Uh, but in any case, uh, they send it to Huldah, and she basically says, yep, this is, this is the genuine article, and this is what's going to happen uh, because of covenant violation. So Josiah is going to begin a huge reform movement to try to bring the nation back online. By the way, we have a, a seal ring from this period, and it actually names not the priest, but the son of the priest who discovered the Torah scroll. And this is his sealing ring. Uh, so that's a pretty fascinating artifact. It says, belonging to Hanan, the son of Hilkiah, who is the priest that found the Torah scroll. Well, Josiah's reform uh, begins with a public reading of the scroll. So if you're a citizen in Jerusalem and you get called to a public assembly, um, what do we call it today? Oh, we call it a town meeting. Um, you call to a town meeting kind of thing. And they're going to read a scroll. And you may not have heard this one before. And you listen to all of these blessings and curses for obedience or disobedience 
that is sort of building a fire under the populace to join and be supportive of the reform movement. So the temple is going to be purged of pagan elements. Uh, the pagan priests are going to be sent packing. Uh, the high places, or the bamot, as they're called in Hebrew, in both Judah and even the upper areas that used to belong to Israel, those are going to be cleansed of pagan things. Uh, the pagan elements are going to be purged going as far back as Solomon. Well, these things have been hanging around for a long time. In fact, Josiah is going to fulfill the prediction of that unnamed prophet of Judah when Jeroboam first built the Bethel shrine and said, one day bones will be burnt on this altar and Josiah is going to do it. He is going to burn human bones on this altar. <clears throat> All right. Um, now, as we are talking about Josiah's reform, I'm going to pause at this point. I think I'll see if there's any last questions and we're going to take a break before we continue on. Uh, I think this is a, a good place to make a break.